so excited that you're here. Tonight is a uh, very important night for us, and it's all going to begin with a little bit of a discussion, if you will. Um, we say all the time here that it is very easy to start things and very difficult to finish them. And, and as much as we say that, and as much as I believe that that is true most of the time, I, I want to add a little bit of a caveat to that. I actually think sometimes it's incredibly difficult to start certain things as well. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, skiing, both water and snow, okay? Now, now first I want to talk to the water ski starters. How many of you guys have ever tried to water ski before, right? Okay, many of you. First of all, I have many observations. First thing is this. I don't think anyone, maybe one out of 99, ever says, all right, today I'm going to water ski. It always happens like you're in a boat with a bunch of people and you start to, hey, come on, man, get out there. Like, get out, get out. Like, it, it's, it's completely easy. You just put them on your feet, and it's all, right? Am I, am I saying the truth? You know, you, you go out in your boat with your friends, and pretty soon they talk you into it, right? And so the, the, everyone's, like, talking you through, put your life jacket on, and they throw, this, they throw the skis out there in the water, and that's the first problem, right? You get out there, at least for me, my first experience, trying to get those things on my feet. How do you do it? You, tw you undo it like that, and, you know, I'm, I'm getting worried that Jaws is underneath me, even though I'm in a lake. Like, it's, it's still, like, all these thoughts are going in your mind. And then everyone is saying how to do it. Okay, you just lean back and you, you know, lean forward and everyone's telling you different things. And you're just like, well, I guess we're just going to go for it, you know. And so you're sitting there and you're so in incredibly nervous because you know what's about to happen. Like there's no way you're getting up on the first time. And so what is inevitable happens. You um, stand up slightly and then you engulf about 65 gallons worth of water through your nostrils that soon comes out your ears, right? And, and like you pop back up and everyone's like, <laughs> are you okay? Like, is everything all right? And, and then what happens? What happens? Like, like everyone starts telling you again how to do it. No, 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 you, you need to lean back farther this time. You weren't, no, you need to lean farther over it, you know? And, and in your mind, you have this thought, if I took this ski off and threw it at the appropriate angle, it might like take all of them out in one fell swoop, you know? <laughs> You want to see people get frustrated? You see people try to water ski. You know what I mean? I've seen people like get so incredibly angry, much like snow skiing. Uh, for those of you that have tried it, like the first problem is, is people who are new, they're already sweating by the time like their skis are on because they're so nervous. And, 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 and new skiers are always bundled way too much, you know, because they, they read some article online and so they've got seven layers on, you know, it's acting as an inward sauna, you know. And then if you've ever been with a new skier, like on, on the lift the whole way up, like they're not saying a word. Because what they're doing is they're, they're like looking at all the, like I'm going to be going down this. But then they realize about a 20 yards to the end that they have to get off the lift. And so then they turn into a frantic, like they just go frantic. Oh, how, do, how am I going to get, like how is this going to, okay, you just kind of do this. And inevitably, like, you know, 5 out of 10 or so, 50%. Uh, how many of you guys have fallen off the first lift that you got off? Okay, many of you guys. Well, getting off the lift is like a, a third of the battle. Then they're like, like weak, feeble knees. They like turn around, and there it is. You know, like the mountain that they're getting ready to go down. Uh, my point is like there's some things that are incredibly hard to start. Like a difficult conversation with someone. Y you know you need to have a difficult convo with someone. Call them out. Maybe encourage them a little bit more intensely than normal. Starting that conversation, you rehearse it. Like 10 times, you've got sweaty palms, right? Pits as well. I mean, every orifice of your body is sweating. Like, you, you don't even know what to do, right? And, and you keep, and, and if they say this, then I'll do this. And if they, 
It's a lot like starting your own business. Incredibly difficult to start. How many entrepreneur business starters do we have here, right? Okay, that's why there's only like three of us here, right? Because it's incredibly hard to do. Another thing that's uh, very difficult to start is, is, a, is a church. Um, I don't say that to escalate us, uh, but rather I'm going to make a point here in a second, escalating someone else. We started the church six and a half years ago with six people. 80% uh, of church plants fail in the first uh, three years because it's very difficult to start a church. And tonight we have this amazing privilege of turning our Bibles to a new chapter, a new season for our church. I shared with our covenant members on Monday night that last Wednesday uh, it wasn't our anticipated end of Hebrews. Actually, we thought we tonight would be doing a recap of it. But we felt such closure with grace be to you all for those of you that were here last week that all of us were talking, we're just like, it's done, it's over, right? And, and so we, we were like, all right, well, here we go. And, and tonight we start a journey just through the summer uh, of the book of James. And then when we launch in our new building, the very first week in mid to late August, we'll begin a, a year and a half to two year worth journey through the book of Acts. Now, the reason why I bring up church planning in James is because James planted a church, was a church leader, in Jerusalem after the execution of Jesus so as hard as church planning was for us in st. Charles imagine planting a church and leading a movement in an area where they're in like to an, to an incredible amount killing Christians and I would imagine if I were to ask most of you like what's your favorite book of the Bible 40 50 maybe 60 percent of you would say James because it's so or feels so practical my contention through this whole journey is, my friends, we have so much to understand in the undergirdings of what James is to really get the weight of it. And honestly, like, like I thought I was fired up for last week because I was pumped about grace be to you all. I've been like wiry all day today because I cannot wait, cannot wait to study these eight verses with you. Okay, so open your Bibles, not to Hebrews, but to James. You'll notice that if your uh, bookmark is still at the end of Hebrews, you, you just have to look to the next page because James is next. You're like, oh, I get it. You guys, you guys just cheated. You're like, end of Hebrews. Well, James is right there. That'll work. No, that's not how it works. This is very intentional. So uh, James uh, chapter 1, incredibly difficult to start things. James certainly was a part of that. And tonight, my friends, let's read these first eight verses, and then we will dive head first. Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you, though, lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives great, uh, generously to all without reproach, and it'll be given him. Verse 6, let, uh, but let him ask in faith with uh, no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In verse 8, finally, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's a famous passage. Many of you have heard it before, but I'm telling you what, we're getting ready to see a whole new picture. Now, anytime you open your Bible, there's a huge question you need to be asking about each book or verse that you study, and that is, who's the author? Well, in verse 1, we get... A pretty good glimpse of that. Uh, James, a servant of God, right? So if you were, you know, from the captain of obvious school, you would say, well, certainly James is the author, and that is the case. 
There are four different biblical James. But there are, all signs are pointing to, to one uh, James in particular that had to write this letter. And so I want to begin our journey with what is so insanely interesting. Uh, the question, next slide, who is James? Uh, the first uh, thing that I want to look at on who James was is he, he was the oldest half-brother of Jesus. Pressure, right? I, I'm not, like some of you guys have amazing siblings. Any of you guys have that? Like your sibling just rocks it? Try having the Lord Jesus as your sibling, you know? So who's, who's your brother? Uh, Jesus, you, you might have heard of him. He healed the blind man the other day. Pretty awesome. And that can go one of two ways, right? It, it can either like cause this immense amount of pride in you or uh, this complex. We know this uh, from the text that uh, tells us, next slide. I just want to affirm these with scripture in Matthew 13. Is, it, uh, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? Uh, it's not the, uh, the Judas that is the betrayer, a different Judas, but James is the half-oldest uh, brother of the Lord Jesus. The second thing that James is, James the Just, the writer of this, is he denied Jesus as Lord at first. Uh, as the claims that his brother were making began to come out, a very similar, actually, to another man named Joseph in the scripture that made some claim to his brothers. His brothers didn't like it so much. Uh, James' uh, brothers, uh, um, or Jesus' brothers, rather, uh, fit in the same category. We see this in the text. Next slide. Uh, in uh, John chapter 7, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret. They're chastising him. If he seeks uh, to, uh, to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Uh, another place in scripture talks about a prophet in his own town is uh, not welcome. The third thing that we see about this person and character of James, this would certainly do a work on you, is he sees the resurrected Jesus. Now for those of you that are just joining us, my biggest contention for the reality of the scripture is that the disciples who are followers of Christ complete morons, honestly, through the Gospels, constantly arguing about which one of them is the greatest, immature, not seeming to get it, running, actually, at the cross. My proof that the Bible is real, very uh, strategically, is that these disciples, the Scripture records, see the risen Jesus, and then 10 of 11 of them end up dying because of their faith. No one would ever, you, would never die for something you didn't believe in. These men are the same. They see the risen Christ, and James sees the risen Christ, and it does a, a huge work in him. And we see this in the scripture. Next slide in 1 Corinthians 15. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Though some have fallen asleep, this is not a nap, they're dead. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Uh, could you imagine this moment? James hears his brother has been crucified, maybe witnesses a, a portion of it. And then all of a sudden sees the resurrected Christ. Uh, I think you'd all agree that this would do a huge work in you. Now what happens as a result of that, our fourth thing that we uh, know about the character of James, next slide, is he's a huge leader in the Jerusalem church. And one of my contentions is that he was a church planter. Uh, Acts 15 gives us a picture before the assembly in Jerusalem of who James is. And he's a man of stature. A lot of people view him as a leader, a strong leader, and... Again, it would be incredibly difficult to plant any kind or pastor any kind of church where the leader has been crucified and executed. The fifth thing that we see, next slide, is Paul calls him a pillar of the church. 
again, uh, quick pause. I know many of you just opened to the book of James, and you're like, listen, there's so many tasty, like, nuggets from this book, and I'm just going to engulf, engulf, engulf. My whole uh, contention through this whole journey through James, if you don't understand who James is, you're going to miss the whole thing. Oh, there will be certain times where it will tickle your heart because they're very practical. But my friends, understanding who he was makes this story much more significant. Next slide, we see Paul call on this in Galatians 2. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, Paul talking, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and uh, they to be circumcised. And so I think we should just uh, start talking in, that, in those terms. Like when it's time to be friends, and now I shall extend to you the right hand of fellowship. You know, and you kind of hug it out and all is well. The most significant piece of James's history to me is number six. He is killed because of his faith. Let me tell you the story of his uh, martyrdom, of his execution. This is actually uh, the least known fact about James, and I would imagine a very small percentage of you have ever heard this story before. Uh, James, after the resurrection of Christ, some years after, in fact, in 62 AD, the Pharisees, the religious ones, those who were part of the murder of the Christ, uh, try to trick James. They uh, talk him into uh, going up to the, the highest point of the temple and to try to break up the rally for Christ that was happening at the base of the temple. In other words, there was a whole bunch of people that were gathered down at the base, and, and they were followers of Jesus. And so the Pharisees said, hey, James, we know you're an influential guy in the church of Jerusalem. Go up there to the pillar of the, uh, or, or the, uh, the top of the temple and tell all these people to shut their mouths. So James says, no problem. And so he goes up to the top of the temple, recorded by Josephus, affirmed by two other Jewish historians, goes up to the top, and he begins to shout, Jesus is alive. And what starts to happen is this crowd underneath erupts, beginning to shout the exact same thing that the disciples were shouting as the triumphant entry was happening. They shout, Hosanna! Glory, to be, uh, glory be to God in the highest! Like the, and so, obviously, the Pharisees don't take too kindly to this, okay? As the, the mob is beginning to shout, one of the Pharisees travels up to where James is as he's continuing to proclaim, and he pushes him off the top of the temple. Uh, but you should note that he's not dead yet. This is, by my estimation, I was trying to do the Google Earth today, at least three or four, maybe five stories high. He doesn't fall to his death. And so the Pharisees then gather around him and begin to stone him, okay? I'm not sure if you've ever fallen off a four or five story building and then been stoned. Doesn't sound like a great way to go out, you know what I'm saying? Problem is, uh, as, the as the historians record, he's not dead yet. And what begins to transpire, much like Stephen, though this isn't recorded in the scripture, just historical uh, books, is he begins to pray, does James, for those who are stoning him, much like his brother Jesus, who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, in Acts 7, records those same words. And James finds himself, as he's being stoned, praying for his persecutor. And one person, the historian says, tries to stop the stoning. Hey, he's blessing us. And again, guys, like this is not a fairy tale. He's He's bloodied. He probably has broken limbs. 
And then finally, in a moment of frustration, someone grabs a club, walks up to James, and hits him upside the head, and he falls dead. Now, uh, even in my studies of James, this was a new story to me. And now, all of a sudden, the rest of James begins to make sense. In other words, if you know someone's end, and it's epic then their life seems to carry more significance. You see what I'm saying? I, I wasn't in the time of Abraham Lincoln. I, I don't know if uh, any of you were, but uh, most of us weren't anyway. It's his end, in my opinion, that makes his life interesting. His end was pretty uh, controversial and pretty substantial, and so because of that, we're enthralled with the man Abraham Lincoln. James, much the same way. His end, substantial, making his life incredibly significant and so for those of you that came here uh, who heard that we we're going to be studying James you're like sweet like I've wanted church to finally feel like Oprah I couldn't wait like I just wanted someone to tell me week in and week out what to do with my life listen you need to understand the setting it's a very disconnected time and as verse 1 ends next slide we see that James is writing to who to the 12 tribes in the dispersion Christians are being persecuted in Jerusalem, and so what happens is there's this massive house church movement that's happening. People are gathering in homes because they know persecution is happening, much like China and other areas of the world now. And so he says to the dispersion, everyone is spread out. This is a man who is desperately passionate to encourage his flock that have been spread out because of persecution. Are we together? So I know many of you would just uh, gloss over verse 1. Oh, that's nice greetings. Thank you, James, right? Instead of really seeing the weight of the pastor's heart who's about to be executed, who just wants to encourage his church to remain in the faith. And that's what James is. It's a proof text. Is your faith real? In fact, all of James. That's the question. Is your faith genuine? So with all that said, all of a sudden verse 2 becomes way more than a Christian bumper sticker. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You see what I'm saying? If James wrote that before his death, then as for me and my house, I want to give ear to what he has to say. Because you don't just stand on the top of the temple and proclaim the name of Jesus all of a sudden. His heart was ready in season and out of season as the scripture says. Are we together? And so when it says, count it joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials. I'm interested in his perspective. I want to hear what he has to say. What do you mean joy and trial can be connected? Well, the first thing we need to do is to define some terms. We say the word trial and all of you have all kinds of thoughts and connotations going through your mind. So we've done a little Greek work and I thought we would break it down like this. Various trials can be adversity or affliction. It can be trouble or testing. There's a litany of things that it represents. And the thing about trial is it's so individualized. In other words, if I had all of you come up here who had been through divorce before, either in your own marriage or the marriage of your parents, and I, I brought us all up here and lined us up, I couldn't do it because the stage wouldn't have enough room. But if I did... Now to go down the line, tell us how it went for you. Agree or disagree, it would be incredibly different for everyone. 
to some, it was like the crossroads in their life that they would say was the most difficult situation. For me, that's certainly the case. My parents divorced when I was 18. I still deal, and my family does as well, the effects of it. Others of you would say, you know what? It was actually a blessing. My dad was abusive. Getting out of the trial in that way was a huge peace for my mom and brothers and sisters and I to finally get out of the house. Trials are so individualized. They're also significant because they're past, present, and future. You see what I'm saying? We all have this massive suitcase full of past trials. Things that just when you hear the word trouble, you're instantly wheeling them through your mind. But also, many of you are involved in some right now. If I were to say, all right, write on a scratch piece of paper what the trials are that you're going through this very second, I would say all of us would have something to write down, something to say. This thing is hurting me. This thing is confusing me. I'm not so sure about this relationship right now. Why does my marriage feel like this? Now, trials is one thing to understand, but I think actually in this case, the better thing for us to understand is joy. A joy is not the smile, okay? A smile can either be the thing that allows us into someone's heart, or it can be the thing that someone hides behind. Many of you here tonight hide behind your smile, your Truman Show-esque, beautiful, white, pearly smile, quick to handshake, everything's all right all the time, you never stop smiling, and it gives the indication, everyone, that all is okay. And in your heart, you know, actually, all is a mess but I'm tired of trying to explain my situation, so I would rather be fake. Joy is not the smile. Joy is something much deeper. And I think we think joy means not grieving. In fact, I think we think this verse means not grieving. Can I actually flip our mentality for a second? I think scripturally for believers, grieving for Christians, takes on whole new meaning. Why? When someone dies, what are we grieving? We're grieving the reality of death, which is brought about by sin, causing us to understand the condition of the world. You see what I'm saying? And so the grief of death is seen in the fact that our world is in a deplorable condition, in desperate need of something. And so I believe actually Christians should be the best at grieving. Because as they cry tears of hurt and pain, it's then coupled with the essence of joy, which is what? Hope. Here is our world, riddled with tragedy and death and chaos, and I grieve those things, and I'm not afraid to be authentic in those things. While all the while, it's balanced with this tremendous amount of hope. I grieve, but I have hope. Why the Lord Jesus walked out of a tomb, who James saw. You see what I'm saying? And this is post that. And so when he says, count it joy when you face trials, he's saying, listen, I'm not talking about smiling and acting like it's okay. I'm talking about the condition of your heart. That amidst trial, adversity, testing, and struggle, there's this deep sense of hope in you that comes out in tremendous form and fashion. I've shared this with you guys a few years ago. I've been in the ministry since I was 18. 
A few years ago, I was 29, quick math, making me 30. Uh, and uh, I, I, I hesitate to share I'm 32 sometimes. I just, you know, I know for those of you that are above 32, you feel like now I'm calling you old. I'm really not. Um, it's just kind of the, the, you guys remember the show 30-somethings? For those of you, you guys remember that show? It's weird to say I'm a 30-something now. Anyway, that's kind of a commercial break. Um, but a few years ago, after being in the ministry for, uh, since I was 18, I, I just got in, in a massive trial. Uh, I would imagine you've been in a season like this, uh, if you've been a Christian for a while. My prayers felt dry, disconnected. I read the word, I didn't feel like it had any life to it anymore. I, find, I found myself just obeying because I was supposed to, not because I really wanted to or desired to follow the Lord Jesus. And I found myself in this incredible state of trial. Nowhere near counting it joy. But I remember the moment when all of a sudden the Lord in His grace reached down and it took some time. And all of a sudden that, that hope came in again to my peripheral. And that moment for believers, my friends, when all seems lost... Because again, I, I was pastoring a church and in my heart struggling like, God, where are you? I don't feel you. I don't see you like I used to. I'm disconnected. When hope came in, then all of a sudden, my friends, everything changed. After three months of not talking to my mother around my parents' divorce and riddled with hurt and pain, when all of a sudden hope came in, then this verse makes sense. Because at first glance, you're like, uh, a joy and trial? Come on, say, do you say? Like, is this, like, I, I, this, there, there's no connection between these two. And so, I want to ask you guys a couple questions, if I may. Right now, for you, what is that trial? What is that struggle? What is that hurt? What is that pain? What is that test? What is that adversity? What is the thing that's really causing brokenheartedness or confusion? You know how deep it is. You know how consuming it is. You know how much you think about it and how much you talk about it or how much you hide behind it. James begins this whole letter from the perspective, as a believer, you have a different kind of hope. In fact, Jesus says, they hated me and they're going to hate you. He never promises an out to trial. It comes with the territory. And so the question for all of us then becomes, what will our life be like? Will we continue to get pressed down by the realities of our existence? Or, as James begins, count it joy, not just a smile, but the condition of the heart that the Lord Jesus is alive. And it's that that supersedes every single element of our existence that feels painful. But I'm tired of faking it. Anyone else? Because that's the struggle right now. Okay, I'm, I'm okay count up your joy. All right, God, I'm joyful. Right? We like make some big line right now and we like go around and everyone's high-fiving. Oh yeah, I'm joyful. I'm going through this and it's awesome. But in your heart, 
You'll leave here and you're like, no, 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 no. Actually, it's not. Is anyone else tired of the community or the body of Christ feeling like they have to fake this verse? So then the question becomes, what's, what's the answer then? How does joy and trial connect to create this beautiful union where I can actually live? And that's the thing. Many of you don't feel like you're living right now at all. Well, as this uh, text unfolds, we're going to continue to unpack that. Next slide says this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know what I love in that scripture? You know. James is writing to Jewish Christians. And he says, hey, 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 you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, longevity, perseverance. You know it. So one of the questions in connecting trial and joy is, do you know it? Do you know that the testing of your faith creates steadfastness and perseverance? Have you experienced that? Or actually, have you just lived in a cloud that anytime trial comes your way, comes knocking at your door, you try to push it away instead of embracing it? Because it produces something. That's why I have two questions about verse 3. The first is this. How do trials test our faith? We need to be able to explain this to the world. Because I think one of the greatest indications for the world of genuine faith is when they see us in trial experiencing joy. Not just a smile, but the condition of the heart. Are you guys with me? So we need to be able to explain this. How do trials test our faith? Well, if you've ever been in one... Actually, the better question is, how do they not? It's when young Christians meet extreme tragedy that there's a great temptation to do what? To run away. Many of you in this room have struggled with that. You came to Christ, the Christian fanfare came around, the trumpets were blowing, everyone was happy, right? And then all of a sudden, tragedy, confusion, questions, doubt. And the temptation in your heart was, forget it then. I'm out of here. It's too hard in there. When the scripture is saying, it's too hard and it should be and it's awesome. Not just by word or smile, but the condition of the heart. Are you guys with me? So when people ask me, what do you mean trials test your faith? I always say, well, how does it not? Every piece of it tests it. And for me in my house, every piece of it affirms because in every lack of faith that I have, he shows his faithfulness. He has never not done that in any situation in my life. Any trial, any chaos, any adversity. In my faithlessness, as I sat there and said, Lord, are you real? He always affirms it. And you're like, is it with a star in the sky, you know? Or an airplane smoke, you know, configuration? No, with his word. He's writing to believers who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit in their heart. And so the word constantly reminds me of his faithfulness. So we together. That's why, and I um, want to move on, but I want to say one more thing. That's why for those of you that get in trial and just leave the word by the wayside. You've done the absolute worst thing you can possibly do. Yeah, I'm just going through this. I'm just going to kind of figure this out on my own. 
when this is just packed with promises to encourage you that in the midst of trial, He is there. And not just there, allowing it to happen to produce something in your faith. In Hebrews, we studied the discipline of the Lord. These things are precious to us. The second question I always get in terms of this is, why should we want that? (laughs) Why should we want our faith to be tested? Wouldn't it be easier if every day we just gathered together and the Lord just came down in the transfiguration in this chapel, right? And Moses and Elijah were here too. And we were all said, hey, let's set up a tent, right? Like, what if that just happened? It would be so affirming to our faith. Agree? If the Lord Jesus is straight, just dropped right here. Don't you think it would all be pretty affirming to our faith? I think he's real. You know what I mean? This is miraculous. Why should we want the testing of our faith? Because if it produces perseverance, as for me and my house, I struggle with that. I struggle with being consistent, seeing things through. And so I want the testing of my faith to happen because it's going to produce a deeper reliance on who he is. Now, uh, one thing about uh, getting a smartphone is that uh, in this generation, your kids start to learn how to use it. And it's amazing to me, Maddox, my one and a half year old, can pick up my phone of eye and, and do the swipe thing. And like he's like navigating through my phone. You know what I'm saying? He's like on my online banking cell. You know, and he's like just <laughs> navigating through it all. But the other interesting thing that happens is uh, when your kids learn how to use the, uh, the picture piece of your phone. And uh, so every once in a while, I get some uh, treats, uh, especially from my daughter. She has taken my phone somewhere, and she has she's begun to take pictures. And so I, I found this one from a couple days ago. Um, now, now, the amazing thing about this is, like, she's just having fun. Like, thinking to herself, like, surely no one will ever see this picture. Uh, th- this is one of, like, 30 in this stretch, okay? So if I, like, kept putting them up, her, like, tongue is in different configurations, her eyebrows are raised and not, you know. I'll go back to verse 4 for a second. I'm going to come back to the picture. Verse 4 said, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be uh, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Back to my picture. So when I start to think about something having full effect, I instantly uh, gravitate, rather, to a graphic art. I love taking pictures and adding an effect to it and seeing, like, how it can be transformed. And any of you who are savvy with Photoshop or, you know, many of the programs now actually do the same thing. It can take a picture like this and make it like this. Next slide. Right? And this is incredibly scary, actually, and probably a scene from some haunted movie. But, um, but what the effect did is it, like, got, it got into the picture, and there is not one piece of that original picture that hasn't been morphed or changed. Like the, the full effect that I put on that picture has completely grabbed it and morphed it and changed it. And so we should want the testing of our faith like verse 4 said. Go back to it for me. Verse 4 says, let the steadfastness have its full effect. Let it take root. Let it sit in there. Let it reach in and change every piece of you. That you may be perfect and complete 
lacking in nothing. And many of you read that and you're like, sweet, perfection is possible in the scripture. Problem is, this is in an original language that is in the Greek. And the word for uh, perfect and complete is not perfection in sinlessness, but rather maturity. Let steadfastness take its full effect so that you may be what? Mature. All of this connected to trial. That's why there are some incredibly mature young folks in this room right now. They have been through tremendous trial and adversity. They have celebrated the joy of the Lord in it. And because of it, it's made them steadfast and mature. Are we together? There are some, I was with a, an 18-year-old young woman today having an amazing conversation about spiritual warfare. And I sat across from her and I thought to myself... This young woman bears so much, so much maturity because of all of the things that God has allowed her to go through. And it's an, another and a further reason for us to celebrate the trials in our life. And so there's so much more puzzle to put together from James, but we need to move on to verse 5 that seems actually to add a, a whole different thought, but it's not at all. If any of you lacks wisdom... Remember what verse 4 said? That you'll lack nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Okay, so many of you who have studied James before, uh, you love it, like I've said, all night because it's practical. Do this, don't do this, consider it joy, count it joy, don't gossip, all of the theme of James. But my friends, we need to understand one thing that that mends all the way through the scripture. Grace is always present. Are we together? It never stops. And last week as we ended, and grace be to you all, grace never stops. And this is the picture. Look, if any of you uh, lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Who gives what? Who gives generously? He's gracious. You ask him for wisdom and he gives it. The problem is many of you aren't asking God for wisdom. You're asking everyone else because they're right here face to face. And I've touched on this before too, but I think one of the biggest travesties of Christianity is the fact that we have the audacity at times to ask people who have no perspective, haven't been in the scripture, haven't been seeking the Lord in prayer. We don't ask those questions. Rather, we just say, hey, listen, let me give you an envelope into my heart right now. And let, can you just speak in? I'm really wrestling with this life decision. We don't ask how their faith is or whether journeying with Christ is. We just give them the keys. And as we often are trained as well, shoot it from the hip. And just whatever the first thing is that comes to mind. Well, I think you should do that. One of the things that I really test in my friends and I ask them to do with me, anytime that we give advice or wisdom or encouragement, it should always be affirmed in the scripture. Well, I think you should do that. Okay, well, yeah, Dr. Oz said that last week, but where is that in the Scripture? Always affirm it in the Scripture. And what does this say? Ask God. Seek the Lord. That needs to be our first conversation. The Scripture says He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to Him. Well, if you're asking for wisdom in the context of this verse, what are you asking for? Anyone? Trial. This is one continuous thought. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Where does wisdom come from? 
in this context, it begins where? Trial, remember? Tri a trial and the testing of your faith creates steadfastness. And it's steadfastness that what? Makes you mature. Grows your wisdom. So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And he gives generously. <laughs> Where are those prayer meetings? The candles are lit, you know. Lord bless us, Lord come. God, we plead for your wisdom and we recognize that for us to grow in maturity and wisdom, that that means our faith will be tested. That means adversity is coming. That means trial is right before us. And Lord, teach us in those moments to embrace them and to see them not as trials, but as opportunities to celebrate the joy in the risen Christ. Are we together? Well, before, I've always just seen this as a separate verse. So I've used this verse in all kinds of contexts. People have come to me and they said, Man, I'm just really seeking the Lord. Hey, Scripture says, look, ask for wisdom. He'll give generously. <laughs> well, what I didn't know is what I was really encouraging them is pray for trial. Pray for it. Because in it, you're going to get a glimpse, a deeper glimpse of the character of God. And that is something to be celebrated. Anyone? Right? As he reveals more pieces of him, I'm saying, Lord, continue to test my faith. And that's what James was trying to do in all these house churches. Is it real or not? And clearly he exemplified from the top of a temple that his was indeed real. Verse 6 says this, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, is driven and tossed by the wind. This could go many different directions, but let's begin by talking about sea sickness, right? I am very prone to motion sickness. Anyone else? Okay. I remember being on a family vacation in Puerto Vallarta on a fishing boat, and uh, there is, can we just agree? For the, how many of you guys have ever been seasick before? Okay. Right, the rest of you. Listen, I don't, wor I don't wish that on my worst enemy. Because you can do nothing when you're out in the middle of the ocean and jaws could eat you if you jump in. You know what I'm saying? And that's exactly what I did. I got so seasick. My dad said it completely looked green. Horrible feeling. Then I get in the water with a life jacket thinking it's going to make it better. What do you do in the water? In the ocean, you're just bobbing up and down. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was a horrible feeling. Listen, the thing about seasickness is you feel like you're never going to get better. Why? Because you still have like two miles to go back to shore. And it, the water is the problem. And I know that's exactly how so many of you feel tonight. You're like, well, this whole thing is about faith. And, and the problem is, I'm right in the middle of chaos. And I can't see the end. I mean, it feels incredibly far away. So if you say all of a sudden I'm just supposed to trust God more, that's the whole problem, Mark. I'm out here in my pain, unable to trust because all I can see is my trial. And many of you guys think then that well, that just means we should start naming, naming it and claiming it, right? But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a way of the sea. I, I look at that and I'm like, how is that even possible? How is it possible to not doubt? Well, do you see how he connects all this? He's encouraging those who have grown in maturity. And if you've grown in maturity, that means you've been brought through trial. And if you've been brought through trial, that means you've seen joy in the hurt. And if you've seen joy in the hurt, then you know that there's no reason to ever doubt him. 
But he adds one thought that's really helpful for those of you guys that are still struggling with this. He adds it here in verse 7. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If you're, if you're doubting in this place, struggling, what you're doubting is the Lord wise. If any of you lacks wisdom, who do you go to? The Lord. So the doubt isn't the existence of God. Are we together in this context? It's not the existence of God. It is, is God wise? Is God all-knowing? Does God understand the plan here? Because that's what many of us struggle with in trial. God, are you sure? Seriously? I can't handle one more day of this. And that's exactly the point. You're right, you can't. That's why you need me. You ready to worship me now? You ready to stop looking at the mirror and thinking about all this past pain that you've carried around in this suitcase of yours instead of just fully relying on me that I can re-renew a joy and a hope in your heart? Then he ends kind of copsulating this, uh, this whole thought, encapsulating rather, verse 8. He says, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Many of us know these people. Just unstable people, like 10,000 pixie sticks a day people, you know. People just feel like they're never sitting on stable ground. And this connects with so many of you right now. I'm in there. I feel, I feel like I'm on a boat just completely being tossed back and forth. I have no stability in my life. I have no direction. I have no hope. And yet I claim the reality of Jesus. This whole text is summed up in this equation. Next slide. The wise equals trial plus joy. Well, uh, for those of you that enjoyed mathematicas, right? Is that the Spanish for math, mathematics, right? For those of you that enjoyed math, you know that in an equation, if you take one piece out, it's, it all of a sudden loses its luster. So if you take trial out of this and you just have wisdom and joy, or if you take joy out, this whole equation says when you can take joy and trial and live and exist in them, then the outcome is wisdom and maturity and growth. And that's why tonight at the end of all of this, I ask the incredibly difficult question that we'll end our thoughts with tonight. Why as Christians are we living victimized? God did this. Why did he do this? This person has done this and beat me down all my life. At every corner, at every step, we're the victim. This happened, this shouldn't have happened in my life. We're on the opposite side of the jury. Lord, why me? Why now? And the promise is, my friends, if you as a believer, as a follower of the Lord Jesus, as an understanding of the hope that we have in an empty tomb, if you live your life victimized, that is no life. Can we just agree? There's no life in that. It's selfish. It's plaguing. All you do is sit in remorse all the time. Why did this happen? I don't understand why this is going on. This is so frustrating. But the victorious, 
realize that it's not on them to experience the victory. Because at the end of this text, that's what it feels like. Hey, guys, listen, come on now. Joy and trial. Everyone, come on, just hop to it, everybody. Shake yourself up a little bit. It's okay. Just write in your journal, it's okay 50 times. And you're going to leave here, and you're going to smile, and all will be well. That, that's our struggle, right? Just go fake it. It's all good. The victory has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Christ. Jesus takes victims. That's right, we entered the world as victims, remember? Sinners because our parents sinned. Entering the world depraved, victimized because of their sin. We enter the world victimized, but because of the grace of Christ and no merit of our own, we can celebrate and then leave the world victorious. The problem is the world is looking on at Christians who are just victims everywhere. And they're saying, well, if you're a victim, I'm a victim too. I don't need any hope because your hope means nothing. And so for those of you that have been sitting under the shroud of your victimization, and I know there's been some incredibly hurtful things that have been done to you, said to you. We rest in a better hope. We rest in a living hope. We rest in a resurrected king. We rest in the same king that James saw. We rest in the same king that when James was being stoned, he had the audacity to pray for those stoning him. We rest in the same Savior, my friends, who Corinthians says stands in victory. And it's that victory at the moment of trial when all seems lost. When the marriage feels like there's no way. When there's another wretched, horrible miscarriage that you have to go through like I know so many of you have gone through. When you're dealing with life and death and you're like, there is no way I'll ever get out of that. And that's the exact same thing the Pharisees thought about Jesus in a tomb. There's no way he's ever coming out. And then he walked out. And in that walkout, it takes us as victims and makes us victorious. Are we together? James begins this entire letter saying, hey, wake up. There's no need to fake it. You don't have to. You have Christ. And so for those of you tonight not feeling it, sitting in all of your hurt and pain, it's time to plead the throne of God and ask for wisdom. And, and you're like, Mark, I'm not sure that I want that now. <laughs> then you've missed the point. Then you've entirely missed what James is saying. Ask him. And through the trial, he's going to show you himself. And when he shows you himself, you will not be able to run away because he is that good. He is that holy. He is that righteous. And when you see that glimpse of his character, you're going to keep pleading that the Lord will keep testing because in it, he will show you his love. Let's stand together. Come on. Listen, I have tremendous compassion for you. Tremendous. I don't claim to understand all that you're thinking and feeling right now. I don't. 
I don't claim to have been in all of your situations. I don't claim to have experienced the same pain that you have. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that joy doesn't have to be faked. It can be realized and experienced right now. And it comes in the victory of a risen Lord. And so you take that suitcase of old baggage in the past, in trial and adversity, and you take the present stuff that's weighing you down, that's confusing you, and you take the stuff that you know will show up tomorrow, the future adversity and trial, and you know what you do with it all? You say, here, Lord Jesus. I'm pretty sure you told me in your scripture to cast all my anxiety on you because you care. And so here, thank you for your care. Receive this. Take the burden off my back and remind me of your deep love for me. And that's what I'm praying for you. That he will show you right now in this moment his deep love for you. And for those of you that don't know him, you can know him. His love can be known and experienced and realized even now. Call on his name. All those past regrets and sins, he can forgive. And you don't have to live one more day victimized because you know how frustrating it is. My friends, we have the opportunity to live in victory. Let's pray together. God, as the heaviness of the reality of our hurt weighs in this room, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come, that you would heal and restore, that you would take the burdens, and that you would replace all of the victimization and give us a sincere-hearted joy. We would have the confidence to know in this body no one has to fake it or act like it's okay. That you would empower us to grieve well and to rest in who you are well. And that tonight you would show my brothers and sisters and myself a glimpse of your character that we've never seen. That we could leave here not victimized anymore but victorious. God, please heal our pain.